Within cinema's landscape, John Ford's The Searchers stands as one of those towering buttes in Monument Valley. It was where Ford filmed the story, and just as those geographical phenomena rise straight off the desert floor and ascend a thousand feet into the air, so too does Ford's film cast a deep, wide and long shadow. So much so that it has influenced generations of filmmakers, both within the American homeland and far beyond its shores. The film is an adaptation of Alan LeMay's novel, which itself is said to have been inspired by the life of Cynthia Ann Parker, who, aged nine, was kidnapped from her family home during a raid by a Comanche troop on Fort Parker, Texas. That happened in 1836, and for almost the next quarter of a century, her uncle James W. Parker roamed the Texan panhandle in search of his niece. When, in 1860, Parker discovered she was living with a Comanche tribe, he was horrified to learn that she had not only assimilated into its culture, she had all but forgotten her childhood. Answering to the Comanche name of Nadwa, she could no longer speak English and, in the interim, had married a war chief and borne him three children. Disgusted at the sight of this, Parker decided to kidnap Nadua and, against her will, rescue her back into white society. And there, for the next 10 years, Nadua tried repeatedly to escape and return to the Comanche territory, but was always caught. Learning that one of her daughters had died, Nadua stopped eating and, broken-hearted at her loss, passed away from influenza in 1871. While unusual, Nadua's story was not unique and historical documents list over 60 similar cases of white children being abducted by Native American tribes, fighting to maintain lands that have been their home for thousands of years. As such, Nadua's story looks into the heart of America's deeply troubled past. Yet, while not only racist but genocidal, it needs to be repeated that those pioneering Americans were in fact early generational European settlers, and sickeningly, the ethnically motivated butchery that happened across the prairies of 19th century America were but harbingers for even more catastrophic exterminations in 20th century Europe. So let's look at the European ancestry of those involved in making the film. Alan LeMay, author of the book, was of Danish ancestry. John Ford's roots can be traced back to the west of Ireland in the late 19th century, while John Wayne's grandfather was Marion Mitchell Morrison, a veteran of the American Civil War, serving in the Illinois Infantry in the Union Army. Going back further, Wayne's heritage can be traced to 18th century Ireland and Scotland. Well, I could mistake you for a half-breed. Um, not quite. I'm 8th Cherokee and the rest is Welsh and English. At least that's what they tell me. Grown some. It was Ethan found you, squalling under a sage clump after your folks had been massacred. It just happened to be me. No need to make more of it. That John Wayne decided to play the role of Ethan Edwards is complex. Edwards was driven by a deeply unpleasant, if not psychologically disturbed, racism. Hardly the fare of an all-American hero for which John Wayne was most famed. 
And yet, it is exactly such complexity that resulted in what many people believe to be Wayne's finest performance. Charismatic as always, it is Wayne's depiction of Edwards that is also simultaneously repulsive. So we must commend Wayne's memory for portraying Edwards' darkness wholesale and not seeking to water it down or erase it altogether. Which leaves me to say that either Wayne was truly a great actor or he was brave enough to explore and ultimately expose within himself what would be to most people deeply unsettling discoveries. This character, this lonely character comes out of the out of the desert or something and uh, uh, he's absolutely terrifying. I mean, he's filled with all, well, he's filled with, he, he just literally um, acts out the racism of our country, you know, and it's right there. You really get his character in the moment when, uh, when they unearth a, a grave of a, a dead Indian and, um, and there's some disagreement, they're discussing, they're arguing, suddenly John Wayne says, John Wayne says, uh, Ethan Edwards says, let's finish the job, do it right. And he twirls out his gun and fires twice, shooting out the eyes of the dead Indian. And he says if he has no eyes, he can't go to the happy hunting ground, so he'll be a wanderer through, within the winds for the rest of his life. Uh, so in a sense, what he's doing, he hates so much that he hates beyond the grave, that he doesn't want to give him the peace of his paradise. You know, he wants to kill the soul of, of these people. Why? Leave them carry off their hurt and dead. Well, Reverend, that tears it. Now and you stay out of this. All of you. I don't want you with me. I'll need you for what I gotta do. So, what of the film's legacy? Taken on even a superficial level, the final image that Ford gives us of Wayne framed forlornly in the doorway with the golden sands behind him possesses such an elemental force it has been copied throughout the decades. You can see its influence in such films as Coppola's The Godfather, where the final shot shows the door being shut on Kay Corleone. Then there is the whole obsessive quest that can be seen in films such as Coppola's Apocalypse Now, not to mention the psychological disintegration mapped out in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. There, Travis Bickle, a US Army veteran, goes to rescue a young prostitute from a pimp who wears his hair long and straight like a Native American Indian. Also take note of the fact that the prostitute Iris doesn't want to be rescued. Look at George Lucas's Star Wars and you will see the young Luke Skywalker return to his burned out home, a virtual replay of the smoldering ashes seen after the Comanche raid on the Edwards homestead. Then you have Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Roy Neary displays a similarly obsessive quest and, as if that were not enough, a young child is abducted as well. Add to that, Devil's Tower may be in Wyoming, but it looks awfully like those Texan buttes. Load up Michael Cimino's Oscar-winning Vietnam picture, The Deer Hunter, and you'll see Michael going in search of his lost friend Nick. And then when Michael finally finds him, Nick doesn't want to come home. Then, after the ensuing tragedy, take note of the funeral scene where we get an image from inside the hearse, Nick's coffin in silhouette, and Michael looking in. Or how about when Spielberg went to adapt Alice Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Color Purple? If you watch the sequence at the end, where Silly is reunited with her sister Nettie, it plays almost shot for shot the opening to Ford's film. I try to write a John Ford film, one or two, before I start every movie. I, I, I just, I have to look at 
The searchers have to, almost every time, simply because he inspires me, and uh, and I'm I'm very sensitive to the way he uses his camera to paint his pictures and the way he frames things and and the way he stages and blocks his people, often keeping the camera static while the people give you the illusion there's a lot more kinetic movement occurring when there's not. So, you know, in, in that sense, he was a, he's like a classic painter, you know, and he celebrates the frame, not just, uh, you know, what happens inside of it. Spielberg quotes him yet again in Saving Private Ryan, when military officials and an army chaplain call on Mrs. Ryan in her Iowa farm to give her the terrible news that three of her sons have been killed in action. And yet again, Spielberg quotes from Ford when, at the end of War of the Worlds, Ray Ferrier reunites with his family. Further afield, you have David Lean, who said that in preparing to make his masterpiece Lawrence of Arabia, he repeatedly watched Ford's film to see how a desert landscape could be used to reflect the character's state of mind. And then you have Japanese master Akira Kurosawa, whose veneration of John Ford was so great that he often framed his characters in doorways the same way that Ford did. But there is something more to all of those pictures, the searchers included, and it is this. The searchers is the story of Ulysses, an ancient myth that explores so many of the mysteries, noble and dark, about human nature. Family, love, rage, war, loss, rescue, return, redemption. It's all there. Here's something else to think about. Over the course of the film, Edward's costume undergoes a subtle yet crucial alteration. At the beginning, he was wearing Confederate grey. By the end, he is changed into Union blue. And for that deeper resonance, we must remember that one of the main causes for the American Civil War was the issue of slavery. Maybe, just maybe, here was John Ford marking Edward's subconscious transformation. But whereas in Homer's Odyssey, Penelope is able to welcome Ulysses home, in the film, Edwards knows that there is no place for people like him. For people so polluted with his hatred, bigotry and racism, the only thing left for him to do is to walk away. This allows us to shut the door on him, hoping that in his departure, he will roam the desert, contemplate his life and find salvation within. As LeMay says in the novel, a man has to learn to forgive himself or he can't stand to live. Hollywood cinema in the 1970s has often been described as the decade that revised a lot of genres. But upon watching The Searchers once again, there is definitely a case to be made for saying that the revisionism had begun 20 years earlier. In fact, you could argue that there are simply two eras for the Western, before The Searchers and everything else since. Come.